Bibles to Mark chapter 5. In Mark chapter 5, we're beginning at verse 21. We're reading the passage that's going to encompass both what we speak about this week and what we speak about next week because of the nature of this particular text and the stories in it that Mark has recorded. So Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was about 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Father, help us to uh, gain not just information out of this passage, but to gain that which feeds our faith and strengthens us in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as we read these stories and as we consider what Mark has written, what your Gospels teach us, that we would love Jesus more and more. 
and that we would understand what it means to truly live for him and that we might above all rest in him at all times for the forgiveness of our sins, the grace that pardons, and the love that comes from knowing Jesus. So we commit this time to you. Enable us because we're sitting under your word to be conformed more to the image of your son, to be made more faithful and our calling to be salt and light to this generation, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, uh, as we come to uh, this double kind of episode that we find here in Mark chapter 5, this latter half of the chapter, uh, we, we see here that we've got some episodes that occurred before and these episodes. And there's a special kind of connection because... What we have in these two stories demonstrates both the power of Christ and the role of faith. Now, when we consider what we read and looked at before, the two episodes that come before this, those two stories are quite fascinating because they demonstrate exclusively the sovereignty of the power of Christ. For instance, just a couple of days before this happens, you've got Mark talking about the sovereignty of Jesus over the stormy sea. His ability to have power over the supernatural. And then you have the second story about the demoniac, his power over demonic kind of evil. So you've got Jesus showing his sovereignty to handle all the natural evils that might occur in the world and then all the supernatural evils that might occur in the world. And in both those situations... What is missing is, in fact, faith. Remember what he says to his disciples when they wake him up. He's asleep during the storm, and he says, What is this? You still have no faith? And then, of course, the story about the demoniac is one who, because of the presence of the supernatural evil within him, he did not come to Jesus because of faith. In fact, the demons were really fearful of Jesus. They were actually trying to compel the demoniac to go elsewhere, but Jesus, by his sovereign power, and by the work of the Holy Spirit, pulls that man, compels that man to come. And it's only as he's delivered uh, from the demoniacs, from the demons, that we find faith actually in him and his trust in Christ. Now we come to these two stories, and these stories have both the power of Christ and the role of faith. And so it looks like in the four stories we have Mark concerned to present the fullness Just as an aside, we won't have that when God enables us to move to the other location. Much quieter. Uh, what we have in, in, in this story is something that completes the picture of what the kingdom of God is all about. The kingdom of God is not only about the sovereignty of God coming into this world in the presence of his son, but it's also about what God works in human beings to actually engender in them faith in Christ in all that he has done. So that's what we're talking about here. Now here in this passage, we've got a kind of a double episode. We have a story within a story. Uh, and of course, it begins with the suffering, it begins with the, the, the suffering father whose daughter is dying. Then it's interrupted by the suffering woman. Her story is told and completed. And then it continues on with the little girl who in fact appears to have died. Now what's interesting about these stories is what the Jewish Christian scholar Alfred Edersheim has to say. He compares the two stories in this passage in this way. He says, in both, 
the thing sought for, humanly speaking, and the means employed seemingly powerless. Yet in both, the outward and inward results required were obtained through the power of Christ. But he goes on to say, in both cases, faith had to be called out, tried, purified, and so perfected. And so these stories are centrally stories about faith. This morning we're going to focus upon the suffering woman. Next week we'll look at Lord Welling Jairus' story and his faith. But what is Mark showing us here? What's the big idea that Mark is presenting? I think we can see it this way when we consider this story in particular. Real faith faith in Christ is never truly exercised until you and I are beyond human help. I want you to think about that. Real faith on our part, real faith in Christ, real faith in God is never truly exercised until our condition human help. Or to put it another way, as long as you and I think that we are part of the process of saving ourselves, we've not yet exercised real, true, and saving faith. As long as you and I think that, that we are doing something that's going to make ourselves better, making ourselves more right with God, as long as we think that somehow our performance is recommending us to God, we are not yet exercising true and saving faith. The story of the suffering woman illustrates powerfully that saving faith happens when we are beyond human help. Now, the story itself divides itself into sort of three natural kinds of divisions. First, looking at the woman's condition, then looking at Jesus' response to that, and looking at the combination of the responses together. So I'm going to be looking at the, the woman's story herself. And in the first place, notice what she experienced, which Mark calls our attention to in verses 25 and 26. The woman had suffered 12 years with a discharge of blood. And in response to that, she had consistently placed her faith in the medical profession over those 12 years. In fact, she had exhausted all of her money. She had spent everything she had. She had endured even more suffering because of all the kinds of things she went through at the hands of the physicians, only to wind up in a worse condition. So 12 years later, she's medically worse off than she was at the very beginning of all this. Now, Edersheim also tells us in the Jewish Talmud, there are no less than 11 different medical remedies proposed for this condition. Yet he goes on to point out that none of them ever really proved to be effective. And apparently this woman had been through all these different physicians trying all of these different kinds of remedies. None of them had helped. All of her money was exhausted. And the outcome was this. She'd essentially placed her faith and hope in the wrong thing. She had exercised, or she is an example of misplaced faith. But secondly, I want you to think about the fact that what she was desiring was, was incredibly legitimate. Uh, there was nothing in what motivated her to seek out these cures that was in any way sinful or any way illegitimate or wrong. In fact, 
she was actually under the obligation of the law of Moses to seek this kind of help. Because according to Leviticus chapter 15, uh, verses 25 to 28, uh, a passage that covers this very kind of condition, what happens if a woman has a discharge of blood, according to that condition, she was ritually and ceremonially unclean. So according to the regulations concerning a discharge of blood, whatever she slept on was unclean, whatever she sat on was unclean, and anyone who would touch her bed or touch her chair would be unclean. In fact, direct contact with her made a person unclean. So we can only imagine what the past 12 years had been like socially for her. I mean, we can rightly infer that she had lived, in many ways, ostracized from the Jewish community. Rather like a leper, she would have to announce when people were around that she was unclean. Uh, This would mean she would never, during that period of time, have been able to participate in all of the common religious practices of the Jews. There would have been no synagogue attendance. There would have been none of the festivals. She couldn't have participated in Passover. None of the things that were so essential to the practice of the Jewish faith were, in fact, possible for her during this time because of her unclean status. Now, when you look at it that way, you can see that here is an aspect of the law of Moses that was so terribly, terribly burdensome. Given her case, what can you do if you can't get healed? If you can't get healed, you can't keep the law. If you can't keep the law, what hope is there? Yet, you know, Paul tells us in Galatians that that her situation is really the kind of situation for which God gave the law. To use the terrible yoke of the law to actually drive people through the law who attempt to keep the law to the realization that there's no hope for salvation in the law. Her defilement, her uncleanness, was something that the law regulated, something that told her, you are this way, but it gave her no remedy. Sure, temporary defilement, but not permanent defilement. There was nothing in the law that could rescue her and her condition. And that says to us that our defilement and our uncleanness, spiritually and morally, can never be eradicated by our trying to keep the law. That was the case here with this poor woman. She couldn't keep the holy law of the old covenant because her condition was beyond human help. Not that she didn't try. Not that she didn't sincerely and exhaustively do everything she could to to rid herself of this ritual uncleanness. But in fact, she was beyond human help. Now, I'm sure that you and I have all heard stories 
that there have been any number of people who would never come to Christ until they hit the bottom. Until they were in such desperate straits that they knew that they were beyond human help. And her story illustrates this. She had turned everywhere, formally, but to Jesus. And then we read in verse 27 what she had heard about Jesus. She had heard these reports. Now, what were these reports? Well, Mark has already explained to us that, that in, in all of, of Israel and then in all of the Gentile countries surrounding Israel, the reports had gone out on the great power of this man to heal any manner of both physical and supernaturally induced diseases and that he was a man who was coming and proclaiming the kingdom of God. So by general reputation, Jesus was considered to be a prophet and a holy man of God. But then what did she specifically believe? We see this in verses 27, into 27 and 28. She certainly had very strong beliefs about Christ based on these reports. When we see what she did, it's likely she had that idea often associated with holy men and sometimes with holy healers, and that is the garment or even the shadow of such a holy man would have the power to heal. In fact, when you read through the book of Acts, you find a couple of stories where this was common in um, in Acts chapter 5, there's Peter who's going through uh, the, the temple area. And you find people who are ill and sick, even hoping that Peter's shadow uh, that he casts will, will, will touch them as Peter walks by. And, and God works miracles through that. Then in uh, Acts chapter 19, we read that God was doing tremendous miracles through the apostle Peter. Apostle Paul in terms of healing, and that they and it says there that that even uh, hankies or aprons that Paul had touched would be used to heal many diseases and to exercise many demons. So it's with that kind of belief that she believed, as it says that even if I touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. Now, I want to point out that there is a kind of imperfection in that kind of faith. Because what is really going on to heal in these situations where God actually does this healing through shadows and hankies and, and aprons, he's not really using the hanky, the apron, the shadow in and of itself is not really the thing that brings about the healing. Furthermore, it's not even the faith that really brings about the healing. Rather, it's what that faith is in that has the power to heal. Let me state that clearly. Biblical faith is always presented as only as good as what that faith is in. This has to be emphasized. Because the idea that faith itself has some great power is very common in our American evangelical culture. Very misplaced and very wrong. Let me explain that. The Bible makes it clear that faith 
is only as good as what you put that faith in. The pinnacle story of the Old Testament that makes that so very clear is found in 1 Kings chapter 18. It's the story of Elijah, the true prophet of God, and the showdown he has with 400 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And up on that mountain, there is a, is a, a spiritual challenge in which Elijah has said, here is a sacrifice You call upon your God to bring fire from heaven to take up this sacrifice. You have 400 prophets of Baal who start early in the morning. They call out all day. They call out in all the sincerity of their faith. They call out in all the exercise of their faith all day long, even cutting themselves, uh, hoping that showing some blood will actually influence their God, Baal, to answer by fire. They do this all day. And how good is their faith? Their faith is as good as the object they have placed their faith in. Baal is an empty God. Baal is nothing, and nothing happens. On the other hand, Elijah had faith in the true and everlasting God. What does Elijah do? He sets up his altar. He slays the bullock. He puts the meat there. Then he had done a big trench around his altar and he pours gallon upon gallon upon gallon of water until his entire sacrifice and the wood on the sacrifice so thoroughly, thoroughly drenched with water. Now the reason he did that, scholars say, is because he wanted to make it clear that there was no trickery involved in what he was doing. That there wasn't some secret mechanism by which he got this lit. So eliminating any possible natural means by which this sacrifice would in fact ever be consumed with fire, he then prays, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you. And immediately, the fire of God fell from the heavens, consumed everything, the offering, and even the entire altar. Now, we come back to the woman, and in her situation, even though her faith had its imperfections, The object of her faith was, in fact, Jesus himself. And that is the same for us. You and I ought to be grateful that our faith, as imperfect as it is, if it truly is in God's Son, Jesus, that faith will accomplish what God has designed for that faith to do. It's not how good our faith is. It's not how strong our faith is. Remember, Jesus said, even if your faith is as small as the mustard seed, uh, your faith has the power to do great things. It is not in your faith. It is in Jesus, because it is Jesus who can do great things. So then we consider what action she took. 
we see here in the story that she was coming up from behind Jesus because Jesus is at the head of this crowd. Try to picture it. She has to make her way through a crowd that's described as a very congested body of people. She has to worm her way through people. Have you ever tried to do that where you need to get to the front of the line and there's a lot of people? They're not always obliging, are they? And so just imagine all the effort, the physical effort it took for her to get up even that close to Jesus. And also at the same time, she has spent 12 years avoiding crowds. She has spent 12 years being respectful of the fact that she is unclean and she shouldn't be touching anyone. And now she's actually violating all of that in order to get to Jesus. All of that was in her mind. She had to be thinking, I shouldn't even be here. But she is moving toward Christ. Against what the law requires, she presses on through the crowd until she touches his garment. And then what does he experience? It tells us in verse 29, immediately the flow of blood dries up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. Now it's interesting that the word that we find in the ESV translation, felt, is really the common word for to know. It means to know by experience. So it's not like just a feeling. It's something more profound than that. She knew by the experience which she had in her body that she was actually healed. Something happened inside of her body so that she knew she was no longer suffering this ailment. Now Mark leaves it to us as readers to imagine what that must have done for her in terms of the uplifting of her heart and joy and those kinds of feelings. But then we go on to the second division of what we're talking about here. How did Jesus respond to all of this? <laughs> this is fairly crazy, this next part. Crazy from the standpoint that it, it, we might have preconceptions about Jesus and what Jesus does and what Jesus knows. And, it, and, and things more or less go a little bit sideways here. Jesus perceives in himself that power leaves him. We read this in verse 30. And that's a fascinating and amazing statement because Jesus is not consciously, Jesus is not specifically willing to heal anyone at this point. From the way the story is told, it is the case that Jesus isn't even aware of this woman's presence, not aware of her particular condition. He's not aware of her particular purpose, and he's not even aware of her particular faith as she goes to touch him. And then look at what Jesus does. He immediately stops. It's clear from the narrative of the story that he stops right then so that he can begin to look around for this person who is connected with him in this way. So he turns around and he looks to the crowd behind him and the verbs in the Greek indicate that he kept doing this. And then while he's doing it, he raises the question, who touched my garment? Jesus is wondering because he knows that he's been touched in a particular way, a special way, a way in which power has gone out of him. He has this sensation. He knows that this has happened, but he doesn't really know who's responsible for touching him. Now, the question goes through our minds. How is that possible for power, healing power, to leave the body of Jesus and Jesus doesn't even know who's connecting with him? I mean, it seems, it, it just, 
it's even having read this story many, many times, reading it again this week, I'm going, this is so incredibly amazing. But the answer, the answer is an answer that's not an answer. The answer is that what we have here is Mark accurately recording the mystery of the divine person of Jesus who's fully God and fully human and who lives out his earthly life in a fully human way and a fully human dimension so that in every way he can identify with us as the second Adam who came to live the life that we didn't live under the law. Then look at what the response of the disciples happens to be in verse 31. Mark records it this way. They say to Jesus, You see the crowds pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Now, thanks to Luke's gospel, we actually have a little more information here. We know that it's actually Peter the one, Peter's the one who's voicing this. And, and so taking the two passages together, it's likely that this is what Peter said. Master, you see the crowds surrounding you and pressing in on you, and yet you say, who touched me? It's like there's a little bit of incredulity on the part of Peter and the disciples as to, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he saying this? Everybody's touching him. Why are you asking who? They're perplexed. They don't understand why Jesus is concerned. They're clueless as to what has happened because they see everybody touching Jesus. But then notice in verse 32, what does Jesus continue to do and what is the significance here? He continues to look around. He continues to ask who has touched him on his garment because he's intent upon finding this person. And, and what this sequence demonstrates is, is that, you know, Jesus in an earlier story was physically exhausted and asleep on the boat when the sea was all raging and storming. And, and Jesus was oblivious to the danger everybody was in. And even now, Jesus doesn't know who the person is. And they had to wake up Jesus in order to, to have Jesus calm the storm. And Jesus has to ask the question, who did this? In order for him to know, and it's, it's an emphasis on the fact that Jesus lived a truly human life. I've talked to Christians at different times, and I think maybe I thought this when I was a, a younger Christian too. I thought Jesus had superhuman powers. I did. Uh, I thought in this kind of situation, well, Jesus, why didn't your spidey sense tell you what was going on here? You know, uh, sort of like that. Jesus did not know these kinds of things. He knew power had gone out from him, but he didn't know who specifically had connected with him because Jesus lived his humanity. And when he did miraculous things and when he had supernatural knowledge, it was because of the Holy Spirit actually working in him and communicating these things and doing things these with him and through him. Someone might say, but if Jesus didn't have some sort of superhuman power, what was it that passed out of Jesus to heal this woman, even when Jesus wasn't directing it or causing it to happen? 
Well, let's ask that same question from a different perspective. And I think this is more helpful. All sorts of people were pressing in around Jesus. None of them got healed except this woman. What was the difference? And the difference was that this woman had specific faith in Jesus for her great need to be healed. She trusted that God's power to heal was vested in this man and her faith was in him. And it was her faith that God the Father was honoring as she believed that Jesus could heal this terrible affliction, that even the touching of his clothing would enable her to become healed. And the fact, what Mark is presenting here, is showing that people can be so close to Jesus, even pressing in upon Jesus, but that they do not have faith in him. Their closeness to Jesus does them no good in this respect at all. Now, do you see the significance of what Mark is is showing there? All sorts of people during the ministry of Christ were attracted to Jesus. After his crucifixion and resurrection, there's only about 120 true believers. It's it's not just that people have been in church. It's not just that people have sort of followed the Christian way. It's not that people have read the Bible. It's not all of those kinds of ways when people might think they're close to Jesus. It's real faith in the real Jesus that connects us to true he truly is. Now, there's, we can also look at this from the standpoint of Jesus not knowing when we think about the bigger story of what this illustrates in terms of the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, God places upon him sin. In fact, it's his human nature, according to Scripture, that has made sin, made a sin offering for us, so that as it says in Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. But it was in his human nature that Jesus died on the cross. It was his human nature that bore that sin. But stop and think. While Jesus is on the cross, his human mind and his human nature did not know the names of the millions and millions of people, past, present, and future, whose sins he was carrying, whose sins he was expiating and atoning for. He did not know in his human nature all of those who had placed their faith in him. Yet even though on the cross his human nature knowledge was limited, nevertheless, nevertheless, the power of his sacrifice was infinite to save all of those who would place their faith in him. And I think that's the comparison. Jesus didn't know in the crowded conditions who was this woman who was believing in him. He didn't know her by name. 
didn't even anticipate what she was doing. But Jesus is the Savior. In his humanity, there's the limitations of human nature. But it is his humanity that God used upon the cross to save us. It was his humanity that God used to heal people. Through that humanity came the saving means by which people were healed. Through that humanity comes the saving means by which our sins are forgiven. Now, in his glorification, Jesus knows all of us by name. In his glorification, Jesus sits at the Father's right hand and intercedes for every one of us by name. But there, before the cross, and there on the cross, Jesus in his humanity, the limitation of his humanity, did not know all that God was doing through him other than that he knew that he would save everyone who placed his faith and trust in his blood. Then we come to the last part where we see both the woman's response and Jesus' response together. What does the woman know? Verse 33 tells us that she knows specifically, she knows accurately that her condition has been healed. In verse 29, she, we read that she knew that immediately when she touched his garment that her blood had dried up. She felt it in her body. She was healed of the disease. There's no question to her, but she's no longer unclean. She's no longer in this hopeless condition that has afflicted her for 12 years. But then how does she respond when she finds out that Jesus is looking for her? Mark tells us she comes back to Jesus with fear and trembling and falls at his feet. Now, why the fear? Why the fear and trembling? Well, she may have feared that there might be a rebuke. You stopped me. I was on a life and death mission. This poor man's daughter's dying, and you stopped me. You interfered with that. She may have been afraid of that. She might have thought that there might be repercussions for the fact that she disregarded all the legal ritual requirements of the law of the Moses. She just she contaminated everybody she touched as she went through the crowd. She also might have thought it was a great sin for her in her unholy condition to actually touch a holy rabbi. But in all that fear, in all that honest fear, she overcomes it all in order to come to the feet of Jesus. What does she say? She tells him the whole truth, according to what Mark says. She shares with Jesus the shame that went with those 12 years. Suffering in that condition, being ritually unclean, outcast from people, not being able to worship. She also then said she had heard reports about him that had given her hope. And even the conviction that if she simply touched his garment, she would be healed. And then she said, no doubt she said, she came even in violation of the regulations of the law, she came in her condition, which in some sense forbade her to come. She came in spite of that to come to Christ. And what does Jesus say to her? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Do you not see in this woman's story the, the great story about what salvation is all about? 
again and again, there are people who do not come to Jesus because they feel such a sense of shame. They, they have this sense, how could God forgive me because of all the things that I've done? And it's not just that I was a victim of somebody else. I may have been somebody's victim, but I went on and lived an awful life. Yeah, I had bad things happen to me, but you know, I could have done differently. I could have done better, and I didn't. How can, how can, how can a holy God ever care about me? How can, how can I ever be loved? Look at all the wrong that I've done. This woman could look at all the wrong she had done even as she was trying to do what was right. And isn't that our story? We often say, but I, I've tried to do, but I haven't been able to do the right. I've, I've tried to be good, but I haven't been able to be good. I've wanted to change my life, but I haven't changed my life. And this woman's story is a tremendous encouragement to us. All she needed to do was touch the hem of his garment. The power of Jesus to save is such a great power that it's not the greatness of your faith, but it's the greatness of the one in whom you place your faith that is the whole of the gospel to us. And Jesus says, what tender words. This woman was older than Jesus. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith in me has made you well. And then the next words are the great benedictory words that we find in the Hebrew language. Go in peace. Shalom. Go in the knowledge that you have favor with God and God has favor toward you and God grants you wholeness in Him. Your affliction and your disease is healed. Not just the body, but the soul. She didn't come to Jesus until she knew she was hopeless. Beyond human help. And this is what you and I must remember. We don't go to Jesus so often until we figure it out. There's no one else to help us. And then also think about people you know and love and care for who are out there with respect to Jesus. Sometimes the prayer you have to pray is this, Father, if you have to take them to the point of hopelessness in order to bring them to you, take them there. The shortest distance to the cross may be the deepest, deepest road of despair in their hearts and souls. And as we love the people who don't know Jesus, we have to pray the deepest blessing in their lives might be that they would come to the point in which they know 
they're hopelessly lost. Those without hope can find hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we would, we would ask that we might see in this story things that would encourage us in our own walk with you and would also encourage us as we care for and love people who don't know you. Sometimes it's members of our own family who don't know you. And enable us to be faithful in prayer. And enable us too sometimes to let them go, to let them walk the awful and difficult path of hopelessness and despair, but trusting you, Lord, trusting you, that when all human hope is gone, that you, in fact, will be there if they would turn to you. This we pray for in the name of your Son. Amen.